live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome to the show. Good evening. You've joined me here. I'm Yona Bud, your host on the Road to Recovery at 640 Toronto. Thanks so much for checking in with us and sticking around for a while and see what's up. If you don't know who I am and if we've never met before, my producer says I'm supposed to let people know who I am. So, like I said, my name is Yona Bud. I'm the clinical director and the co-founder at the farm in Stouffville Residential Treatment Center. Also the co-founder and clinical director of Recover at Home, uh, an in-home recovery program for mental health and addiction. And I do this stuff with you guys on radio and uh, coach and I speak and do all that other stuff as well. But right now, my thing is being here with you all. That's uh, what I'm interested in. And uh, I'd love for you to check in with me tonight as we uh, as we talk about things that might interest you and we have the opportunity to, to deal with guests. We'd love you to call us here at 416-870-6400 or 888-225-8255. And let's get started. You know, there um, was a long time before I got diagnosed with uh, anxiety disorder, ADD, and OCD a uh, long time, uh, well into my uh, 40s. Um, and for many, many years, uh, things like uh, going on a trip with my family, uh, getting ready to go out shopping, uh, big dinners, uh, big large family gatherings and so on would cause me what I now know as great anxiety. At the time, not so much. Didn't really understand what it was. It was just, you know, creepy feeling and that gutty. I was angry. I was agitated. I was, you know, wanted to roll down all the windows in the winter. Um, my, you know, that my, I was, I was, um, perspiring and, you know, that whole kind of yucky, yucky feeling. If you've ever had an anxiety attack, you know what I'm talking about here. Well, you know, it took a long time for me to get diagnosed because it took a long time for me to understand that even though for many, many years I was helping people who suffered with exactly what I was dealing with, I didn't put it together. I just didn't put it together. I didn't realize that what I was talking about was really my stuff too, right? So according to the doctors in the U.S., they're suggesting that everyone under the age of 65 be screened for anxiety. So... um I'm going to get, I have some issues around, you know, why 65 and all that, but we'll get to that maybe later in the show. Uh, but right now, I really want to deal with the fact that what they're recommending is an anxiety screening uh, in primary care for adults without any symptoms. So everyone should get checked out. I don't think it's a horrible idea. I'm not sure exactly. We'll get to, to this here a little bit in the article, how exactly they're going to do that. But the proposal for uh, came open for public uh, comment, uh, will be open for public comment on October 17th, put down, put together by the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. Um, this is a U.S. Uh, a U.S. issue um, or a U.S. story, I should say. The recommendations are based on a review that began before um, COVID-19, evaluating studies showing potential benefits and risks from screening. I don't see the risks. There's not, it's non-invasive. Given reports of a surge in mental health problems linked with pandemic isolation, so on and so forth. We know what all that means. Um, Lori Pebert, a, a task force member and co-author of this study. She's a psycholo- psychologist researcher at the University of Massachusetts, Han Chan, excuse me, Chan Medical School. The task force has said evidence for benefits included uh, effective treatments outweighs any risks, which include inaccurate screening results that could lead to unnecessary follow-up. Worst comes to worst, someone's diagnosed with, you know, moderate uh, to light anxiety. Um, I'm not, see, here's the thing. Let's go backwards. Everyone has a little bit. 
right? I mean, how many people you know that have to get up and say a speech at a wedding or some event or, or at work or at school, you know, if you're in college or university, because if you're in high school doing this, then there's a real problem. But anyway, and have to get up and make a speech and, you know, maybe need a shot or two of a little vodka or smoke a little bit of weed or, or just something just to get through that horrible, stretchy, horrible, you know, feeling in your chest that feels like someone's sitting on it with their knees. You know what I mean. You've been there. If you're looking at me shaking your head, yes, like you and I both deal with the same stuff, right? That's what a, a bit of a panic attack feels like. So for people like me that have a, an anxiety disorder, that stuff is more extreme more often and a little harder to control. If it's, you know, I'm nervous about taking a test, uh, one would not think you're anxious per se. One would think you're nervous and perhaps uh, have a little bit of... Uh, I don't know, nervous and have a little bit of, of uh, you know, a little panic around whether you're going to do well or not. But that goes away after you write the exam and everything feels great after you're done. So the, the intent of the test here is to uh, let people know uh, that, um, in fact, uh, there's an opportunity to um, get tested, an opportunity to find out if, in fact, you know, they have an anxiety disorder, so to speak. Uh, the research is, uh, isn't enough that the, the way it's done here is, um, the, the doctors ask you certain questions or certain, uh, parts of certain, um, um, what do they call the certain questionnaires, excuse me, involved in the process, um, brief questionnaires about symptoms such as fears and worries that interfere with the uh, usual activities. Um, anyway, there, there's the, the, the conversation about getting screened for anxiety. Um, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a thing here. And I think that there's something we're talking about when you go see your doctor, say, hey, listen, you know, um, especially if you've had some symptoms, like, you know, stuff that's keeping you awake at night or you're really worried about the future a lot more than, you know, normal, whatever normal is, but you're really worried about the future a lot. You panic about things and so on. So I think it's something worth looking at for sure. Uh, we all, um, you know, we all have little things we panic about. We all have things that cause us some concern. Uh, but if it's a little out of control, perhaps you can get some help around that. Uh, talk therapy, frankly, and mindfulness is a great way to deal with it, right? You get some mindfulness tools. You can learn mindfulness online. It's everywhere. Uh, it's pretty easy to uh, get what you need on YouTube and so on. When we come back, we're going to talk about some more stuff here. Mums aren't okay. No, not at all. So come back and join us here on The Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. I'm in the studio here with uh, Danny and Stefan and the team here at Chorus, and uh, we're just so happy to be here hanging out with you. And I uh, hope you're having a good evening. Like, what are you doing on a Saturday night? It's not so yucky out there yet, is it? Uh, it's supposed to be raining, but it's not raining up here where I am, and uh, hopefully it's not raining where you are. Uh, tomorrow's going to get yucky, and maybe Monday even a little yuckier. And for my friends that celebrate um, the Jewish holiday of the new year coming up, happy Rosh Hashanah or Shana Tova, and wish everybody and everyone, whether you celebrate it or not, a great year coming up. And um, yeah, it's a couple of days of uh, having fun and doing some praying and some eating and yeah, all that kind of stuff. And you know, in the kitchen... Most of those times are moms, lots and lots of moms. Certainly my mom was, may she rest in peace, and my wife, who's a mom and a grandmom, she's in there too. And, you know, we, we also try in this generation to have uh, some help from the male part of the team. But moms are, 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 are busy. They're, they're real busy. And today, these days, they're not okay. 
they're just generally not okay. The new normal, as they say, as inflation is crushing us, facing painfully long global health crisis, along with increasing financial social changes and kids not to school and in school and sickness and no sickness and you keep them home, you don't keep them home. It's really difficult. And uh, we've seen the writer here of this article uh, says she's seen firsthand how mothers bear the brunt of the weight in our community. I'm both a mom and a frontline worker supporting low-income, new, and expecting moms at a place called the Stop Community Food Center. It's a mid-sized not-for-profit. We'll find out more about them. Um, and they do a lot to help people. And she says she understands the feelings and the struggles many families in vulnerable conditions are expecting and experiencing like many other moms, I'm overwhelmed by the extra work hours I need to put in weekly. Um, yeah, man, if you if you got a mom and or you know moms, you just you know, especially working moms that have you know a working job outside and a working job inside. So it's really tough on these folks, really tough on them. And supporting families uh, experiencing poverty is why the stop this place called the stop, and we're going to get to that why it exists. They provide fresh food hampers to moms in our program, along with diapers and. Uh, lactation consultants and per personal support, food vouchers, community building. It's just a place to come to support local moms in crisis. We need an urgent and appropriate increase in wages, family supports, and social assistance rates. Um, we must try. We must treat poverty with urgency because our moms are not okay, and they should worry. And that we should worry. All of us should worry. This is according to Tanya Borja. She's a senior coordinator of our Healthy Beginnings program at the Stop Community Food Center. And my guest this evening, Tanya, how are you? Hi there. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me tonight. Oh, amazing. We're so happy that you could join us. Um, you know, th this whole thing about, uh, I, you know, I remember, you know, my mom when she was uh, healthy and alive and, uh, you know, she just passed recently, but for a long time, even well into her, you know, early 90s, you know, she was busy. She was busy in the kitchen. And, you know, even if uh, we used to say, Mom, don't worry, you know, we'll come over, we'll do stuff, we'll bring stuff. No, 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 no. She just, you know, uh, you know, labor of love for sure, right? Uh, but the the um, the reality is that you know she just really wouldn't give it up. She you know wanted to wanted to do whatever she could in her own way. Um, but today, mothers, you know that that she was a working mom in terms of working at home for the most part of our life. Uh, she did work out of the house for a while. Today, it's it's just I don't know how some of these ladies do it. I mean, they work sometimes full two full time job, maybe two full time jobs, um, and they take care of a family. Um, what are you seeing? Uh, we're totally busy. <laughs> we're absolutely busy. We're busy beyond um, what we can even imagine. It's crazy. Uh, being being a mother, a working mother, um, is just something that we are experiencing, and and it's very taxing in many ways. So yes, indeed, we are busy, and as you said, it is a work of love, um, but it's also um, a work that is in a way, really um, taking taking a toll in, in many parts of our lives. Tell me a little bit, uh, Tanya, if you're just checking in here, I'm talking with Tanya Borja. She's the Senior Coordinator of Healthy Beginnings Program at Stop Community Food Center. Tell it for all of us that you know may not know uh, what, uh, what the STOP is, give us a, a background, a little bit of what, what they do and how they came about, please. Yes, absolutely. 
So the Stop Community Food Center is a nonprofit that provides emergency food access to community members and also provides opportunities for community building as well as education and skills development through different kind of programming as well as urban agriculture. So yeah, we are located in the West End and we are we have been working very hard through this uh, pandemic episode, uh, supporting a lot of the, the local uh, community when it comes to accessing um, food and, and different resources. Yeah, I, I understand you're one of Canada's first food banks, actually, back in the 80s when food banks were just kind of starting out. Um, and then you built this thing. They built this. How long have you been there, by the way? How long have you been at the stop? Well, uh, it's actually interesting because I have been involved with the stop for over eight years. Uh, I started as a participant of the very program that I'm running right now, Healthy Beginnings. I was uh, pregnant with my youngest child, and we were uh, in a vulnerable situation. And, and so someone referred me to the stop, and that's how I I got to, to know the stop. So... I've been involved for many years in different capacities. I've been a volunteer, I've been a staff member, and and now I am um, coordinate, uh, coordinating this program that's Healthy Beginnings, which, by the way, is part of the Canadian Perinatal National Program. Well, I, first of all, kudos to you, and uh, I just love stories like that. I mean, we have uh, in, in our in our treatment program, we have a bunch of of patients who are now therapists. Uh, they were our patients; they're now therapists in our facilities. It just doesn't get better, right? Doesn't get better than when you come up from the from the uh, kind of the uh, a user standpoint, and then you can bring in the th- the whole you know you bring a different perspective. So you know, cool cool for you, and I'm really glad that you're you stuck with this, and they're now I'm sure giving back in a big big way uh but that's a really you know it's, it's really interesting to hear when people come from a program uh to run a program um and that just takes all kinds of of uh i guess uh, a lot of fortitude so you know good for you and uh good for the people you get to 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 work with um the mission according to what i'm reading here is a stop strives to increase access to healthy food in a manner that maintains dignity builds health and community and challenges inequity but it's a lot more than food right Absolutely. It's a lot more than food. It's, as I said, um, opportunities for community building to bring together people through food, through uh, sharing not only the um, good harvest that our community gardens yield, but also finding a space to cook together, to talk together, to share recipes, to, to volunteer as well, to be part of the, of the organization in, in meaningful ways and, and just basically having a, a place where different resources are in one spot. So yeah, definitely more than, than a food bank and, and food hampers. Um, I, I, you know, what I'm thinking here is, you know, the motivation that it took you to kind of put this whole uh, article together, Mums Are Not Okay, what was your motivation behind it? What were you thinking? Well, definitely um, working with with moms, with, with uh, pregnant people that are in vulnerable situations uh, have have been witnessing how a lot of the families that come to us really struggle to make ends meet and uh, and to really get what they need. 
seeing how their incomes really fall short every month and, and how families in general just uh, fall through the cracks. It's, it's just something that really makes me think of uh, how how can we make this situation known and how can we talk about this? Because we know we, we have... Um, uh, inflation. We know that we we are all experiencing hardship uh, in, in many ways, but we need to talk about it, and we need to really have the space, create a space for conversations that will create opportunities to to solve, to to provide alternatives to to what's happening right now. So definitely, and, and also my own personal experience of fe- uh, feeling overwhelmed, like really overwhelmed with uh, not only what I have to do in terms of doing my job, but also caring for my family and doing everything else that it's also um, in, I invest my time, my energy, and I don't get paid for, right? Right, right, right. Um, okay, I have one more question. We've got about a minute and a half left here. Let's have one more question, and I know you're going to stick around and come back after the break. Um, what do you think we need to do? What, how do we consider, what do we have to consider as we get into what looks like this new normal for a while, I guess, with inflation and cost of things going through the roof? I mean, my wife came home the other day to tell me, you know, we're having dinner on Sunday night for a bunch of uh, our family uh, to celebrate uh, the, the Jewish New Year, and she came home with three, three uh, uh, turkey breasts, and they were a fortune. Um, they, they were like a fortune compared to last year. So, right. really quickly, we got we got less than a minute. What do we need to think? What do we need to think about here in uh, in the coming uh, the coming months and years, perhaps? Well, I think that we need to promote personal and financial empowerment to individuals and family. That's that's key. We need to create spaces to talk about what really the families need to 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 support them. Uh, their late daily lives, right? And and definitely, uh, rise, raising wages, uh, social assistance rates, uh, make affordable housing projects. And and one thing that I I believe is very important as, as well is having access to support, yeah. um, that support mental and emotional well being and health. That's I think that's key. I'm talking to Tanya Borja, and uh, we're going to come back and talk some more about uh, what's going on with women and this unpaid work, how it's bad for your mental health. You're on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm Yona Bud, your host this evening. And you're on the road to recovery here at 640 Toronto. I have a guest with me, Tanya uh, Borja. She'll be joining us right here in a second. Uh, it's time. Uh, time is a resource of life, of health, excuse me. Jennifer Irvin told me over Zoom, uh, there is a double burden for so many women of having a paid workforce position. And then once that work ends, huge amounts of unpaid labor in the mornings and the evenings at home. Erin is the lead researcher of a study to come out of the University of Melbourne, published in Lancet earlier this month entitled gender differences in the association between unpaid labor and mental health in employed adults a systematic review believed to be the first of its kind to examine the gendered intersection of the three realms work home and mental health that happen to make up the bulk of many daily concerns uh tanya welcome back um the 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 study itself uh out of the university of melbourne is believed to be the first of its kind to examine this kind of gendered uh, intersection of work home and mental health after reviewing 14 studies 
some of which looked at housework time, others child care, others unpaid labor. It concluded that inequities in the divisions of unpaid labor expose women to greater risk of poor mental health than men. What's your reaction to what I just shared from this study? Uh, it's incredibly appropriate, Jonah. I think it's timely. It's just about time that we talk about this. It's um, definitely the inequities in the division of the unpaid labor really pose a threat on, on, on mental health, in women's mental health and emotional health. And, and really, it's, um, it's very important to talk about this, creating spaces to, to talk about this, because we definitely need... Uh, acknowledgement and, and finding ways to to, to support these situations for the betterment and well-being of all. Yeah, so here's where I'm kind of, thank you, I appreciate your feedback, but here's where I'm kind of coming from. You know, like, we've always talked, like, I have patients that tell me, you know, when we ask where, you know, where you learned your drinking patterns from and so on, and they'd say, you know, my dad would come home from work, you know, he'd pour himself a beer or a shot, or a shot of whiskey and go sit in the living room, read the paper, watch the news, and, and you know, my mom comes home from work and my mom be in the kitchen working and cleaning and doing laundry. Um, it just seemed like a norm for so many people that working moms also did all the work at home because, you know, most men, as I'm embarrassed to say, just don't realize they got to pick up their hands and help. Um, so it's not it's not something we we haven't seen forever and ever. But you're right; we need to talk about it because I think it's just going on for far too long. I think a new generation of of young women are are not settling for that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, what, give me an example when we talk about unpaid labor. I mean, I think I, I really think for the sake of the audience, but we're really talking about the housekeeping and the child rearing and 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 all that kind of stuff. Is that is that what we're talking about here as it relates to unpaid labor? Yes, I think definitely it's a lot of those things and and those things really are taken from for granted. You know, the cooking, the washing dishes, the cleaning and all of that. I think that's uh, something that we are supposed to do. Like why? I don't know. But if you ask me how many times have I stood in front of my sink washing dishes crying my eyes out because I am at the brink of a nervous uh, breakdown. Like, it's, it's just so many, so many that I yeah. can, you know, count them with, with, my, with my hands. And, and so, you know, like, things like um, dealing with, for instance, uh, an episode of sibling rivalry, right? Like, you have to be able to, to handle these things in a way that is, if you are trying to be a conscious parent, uh, with with skill, right? With with right. Um, level of skill that you need to 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 educate yourself for. So that is, you know, uh, some um, a heck of of unpaid job, uh, unpaid labor. Uh, for instance, having to support a child with special needs, like everything that is behind that, it's it's just right. incredibly um cumbersome and and also there are other people that uh support their partners in their careers in their businesses doing things that um that you know like as a favor here and there because we are partners and we're a team or whatever but that's something that someone else should be doing as a as a paid job right so why do we deal with all this stuff that um in a way you know, it's it's definitely a burden and and, and, and something more on our shoulders. So, I think so I'm going to... Uh, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, yeah, a little example. 
I think you cut out a little bit there, Tanya. What, what were you just saying? I'm sorry. No, I was just saying that those are just the little examples that come to mind when it comes to unpaid labor that we do yeah. every day. So let me ask. Here's here's the here's the five hundred dollar question. Not really, but um, why do you think? Like, I, I mean, I know why in my in my community, like in the the Jewish community, why for some reason the older generations, you know, the women did the cooking, and the men stayed in the in the in the living room and kitchen in the dining room. I, I knew guys. I had uncles that would sit at the table and just wait for their 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 wives to to bring them their meal and grab them a fork, and you know, they just wouldn't get up. It's disgusting. I mean, honestly, sitting back to watch it um, as I'm an adult, I just it's horrible. Uh, and I have three boys. We raised three boys, and uh, you know they help, right? They get up and help. Um, did you? Why do you think? Why do you think it falls to the woman versus the husband or versus the man in the house? Well, I think that's uh, definitely something that has historically happened, and it has been very hard to challenge those beliefs, right? That the woman is the one who stays home and does all the work, and the man goes out and, and works. And as a provider, it's like the general, um, in a way, patriarchal uh belief system and and it's it's just it's not here only it's in general everywhere in the world except for those societies that are um, more matriarchal in nature right but right. definitely something that um it's it's just we have inherited through through many years and and it's it's definitely not okay <laughs> okay um you know is there a way to mitigate this do you think is there a way to to kind of get out a message, create maybe a some kind of slogan or something. I mean, is there a way to mitigate this so it doesn't continue to to, to function like this, where men kind of sit back and women, or for the most part, um, and and even you know single single parents where it falls on the mom and 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 not a lot of help. Like people's mental health, we know. I see it in my practice that their mental health is is greatly affected uh, by this kind of situation. Um, what's your thinking around how to how to change this? What, you know, if you had a magic wand and could change it, what would that look like? I would say well, we should start with talking, communicating with our partners or with our support system if we are single parents. Uh, and 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 I think one important key piece is to really acknowledge the privilege that it is to be able to just go out and do your work and forget about everything else and, and, and let the other person deal with, you know, the little details of daily life. So I think really acknowledging the, the privilege that uh, it is to, to be able to, to just be out there doing your job, in your paid job, um, it's, it's a way to start. And talking to, to your partner and really saying, hey, I, I know that even though I have my own um, work, my own job, but I, I understand that these other aspects needs to be equally um, shared. And, and really thinking about being a team and, and, and sharing the, 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 the burden, right? The, um, all this work. Yeah, that say the responsibility done. for sure. Are you, are you in a relationship right now, if I can ask? Uh, that's a little bit personal. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let me rephrase it. Are you, um, have you restructured your life such that you're not the only one in the house doing all the work? How's that? 
Well, you know, this is, um, yes, I would say so. Uh, it has to be in a way that was a wake-up call for, for our family because things weren't really equal, I would say, and that was making, um, that was being very taxing in my mental health. Right. Um, speaking of which, last question, I guess, before we, we go to the next uh, subject, and thank you so much for being with us. How do you keep your mental health and well-being in check? You're a frontline worker, you're a parent, you're an advocate, you're, you write, you're obviously very active, involved, actively involved in the world of trying to bring some regulation and norm- normalcy to the lives of hardworking women uh, who don't have a voice, perhaps. How do you keep your own stuff together? Well, Jonah, um, I must say I'm also a holistic health practitioner myself. Uh, oh. I have in holistic therapies and alternative me- methods of health. So I do have some tools that I am able to use when, you know, I'm investing, yeah. just crying my eyes out. Uh, yeah. What will definitely take time for myself. I, I made a point of just taking that moment to either um, you know, just take a walk around the block or sit down and, and write, write. I love writing. Writing has really been a, a healing tool for me for, for many years, has taken me out of many difficult moments in my life. Um, Excellent. Just having that space, creating that space for myself and making uh, myself, my self-care a priority when I need is time for me to, yeah. to take a Okay, thank you so much. I'm talking to Tanya Borja. She's the Senior Coordinator of Healthy Beginnings Program, Stop Community Food Center in Toronto. Um, a great guest. Thank you so much. When we come back, we're going to find out if that suit fits. And if not, how do you pick a suit that fits? Not really a clothing segment, but it should be interesting. You're on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud. I'm your host. We'll be right back, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. I am Yona Bud, your host here this evening on the Road to Recovery, and we're talking tonight about trying to find a suit that fits. What does that really mean? I'm not really a haberdasher. It's not my job to find you a piece of uh, clothing that you like. It's not what we're doing here right now. We're talking about the inside suit, the one that you're getting comfortable in your own skin. That's really what we're talking about here, right? And being able to get comfortable in your own skin and be the person you want to be, you know, and kind of not let everybody affect you. The difference between being internally motivated and externally motivated. That's the big step towards being comfortable in your own skin. What that means is, right? That means is you need to learn how to be comfortable in your own skin. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be somebody for somebody else and not somebody for you. You're going to be the person that you don't want to be because others want you to be a different person than you could perhaps be or want to be, right? What is that? I know it sounds all confusing. If you're not sure what you're doing here, you're listening to The Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Budd, and we're talking about getting comfortable in your own skin. I'm sure a lot of people bought a new suit. Or if you haven't bought a suit in a while, you'll notice the style's changed. I had to go out this summer, had a couple of events, hadn't really gotten dressed with anything other than stretchy clothes. Oh, by the way, everything I bought since then, including the suits and the shirts and everything, all are stretchy. It's great. You can find spandex and cotton and spandex and whatever, all all kinds of choices out there. But 
I digress, right? So Sarah Nicole Landry, she wrote on Instagram, there comes a point in your life when your heart tells a bigger story than your body ever could. You know the difference between what looks like it is good and well and what actually is. You understand that a body is just destined for change. You see yourself as an ebb and flow through seasons of life and you stand in your present fully knowing that this is a struggle. This is a war. But the fight feels less about you versus your body and more about you with you, your body taking on just the outside cover, right? We're really talking about the difference between how you feel inside and who you are and how we evolve, right? How we evolve, how we get to a place in our lives, right? We get to a place in our lives where, we're, where we can look in the mirror and we like what we see. You know, the patients that we see at the farm in Stouffville, you know, I used to always you know, say to them, if you looked in the mirror today, because what I see looks amazing. And you can actually see the transition from someone getting getting well from the from when they come in 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 a in a situation where they're not so well. Your physical they physically change, but on the inside, that's what we're talking about, right? On the inside, as your body flows along, ready to support the best ways it can, and knows how I've changed a million times over and a million more times to come. But I'm not the stillness of a moment, a year, a chapter, or two. I'm an entire story. She goes on to say, held within a cover, moving through life. Change is not failure. Change is inevitable. It's a flow of existence, right? What does that mean? It means you're always going to be on the groove. You're always going to be on the move. You're always going to be looking to find that special feeling. It's just the way it is. It's just part of growth. You know, when I was a kid, when I remember I, I went from a, a life of lying, stealing, and cheating to uh, a life of trying to help people in my early 20s, and when I remember going to, to school at George Brown when I first started to study uh, for this program, and I remember that I started to look like some of the therapists there, some of the teachers. You know, my hair was long anyway, but I started to dress kind of that, you know, that social worker-looking dress code kind of thing, you know, corduroy pants, a shirt with a vest, you know, a sweater vest. And, you know, if I could smoke a pipe, I would have, but I didn't. It made me sick. But you get my drift, right? So for me, I was always trying to find my groove. You know, one of my kids, one of my one of my boys, when he was much younger, um, you know, he would get dressed according to whatever uh, service people and laborers were coming to help us around our property at the time. You know, he if the if if the landscaper was coming, he'd wear landscaping clothes. If uh, the guy was coming to fix our camera systems, he'd dress in clothes. That, you know, with his pow- his tool pouch on him and so on. He he dressed to the occasion, right? It's easy to do on the outside, harder to do on the inside. So what I'm talking about is learning how to get comfortable in your own skin, learning how to be who you want to be. I gave a talk the other the other evening. I've started to speak again, so if anyone's looking for me to come and chat at your group, I'd be glad to. Just let us know, and we'll uh, make arrangements to come out there. But uh, speaking to a group of, of uh, high, very high-powered women, and we were talking about the, the 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 whole concept of change and getting comfortable in your own school in your own skin, and you know it became very obvious that a lot of people live their lives for others. Right? Live your lives for your kids, live your lives for your husband or wife, live your lives for your work, live your lives for your family, live your lives for your teammates. Right? A lot of people live their lives for others. And when we do that, we have a harder time getting comfortable in our own skin. We have a hard, harder time making decisions that are good for us. And that's what being comfortable in your own skin is about, my dear friends. It's about being able to look yourself in the mirror, look at yourself in the mirror and like the choices you've made, like who you've become. It's not about big or small, thin or fat or whatever. It's not about losing weight. It's not about gaining height. 
It's not about those great glasses. Sure, let me go backwards. Absolutely. If you're feeling a little down, go out and buy yourself something, whether it's just a new hat or it's a, you know, if you can afford it, a new dress or a new, a new, uh, a new suit or whatever you're into, a new pair of jeans, a new t-shirt, sweatshirt, right? Sometimes I remember way back when, back in the day when I, when I, you know, uh, when I was feeling down and wasn't really sure why. Now I know more, of course, as to why, because I've been diagnosed, but then I wasn't. I used to go buy things like, you know, buy a cool pair of shoes or buy, you know, a really cool sweater or buy a sweatshirt just because something new just made me feel good, at least for a little while. Same too with the inside. Make changes on the inside. Make decisions on the inside that work for you. Make sure your skin fits for you. That comes with being able to say no, which is a whole a whole show by itself, learning how to say no. It's the most difficult two-letter word people say anywhere in the world, no. People ask for help, you got to learn how to say no sometimes. People want your time or your money, you have to learn how to say no sometimes. You have to be able to make decisions that are good for you so that you can look at yourself at the end of the day in the mirror and go, yep. I made good choices. Doesn't mean you're not there to help others. Doesn't mean that you don't make choices to do the things that you want to do to help others, but you're making those choices for you, not because you're motivated by them. So, you know, one of the things I do with patients when we're talking about getting comfortable in your own skin, I'll hold up my hand. So if you can imagine my hands held up now, right? So I'm showing my thumb, my my hands facing towards me. I can see my thumb and my four fingers, right? So imagine you're the thumb, okay? And you decided for whatever reason you want to, you want to dye your hair blue. Cause you just feel like you'd like to dye your hair blue. It's just, it's something you feel inside. You're really motivated to do it. You saw it on somebody. It looked amazing. You thought it would great, would look great for you. And by the way, it's only hair. It's only dye. It's easy to fix, right? So now you go, now look at those other fingers, right? If you're looking at your fingers, come on, pay attention. You're the thumb. And those four fingers represent any four people in your life, in your life that matter enough to you that your that their opinion matters, okay? So someone has to matter enough to you that their opinion matters. Now you ask all one all of those four people, what do you think about me dyeing my hair blue? Inevitably, one of them is going to say, nah, not such a great idea. So people who rely on others to give them the satisfaction and give them the okay to live their own lives, generally you wake up one day and realize they haven't lived their own life. They've lived their lives for others. Being able to dye your hair blue and then ask your friends, hey, what do you think? without really caring what the result is. It's like, hey, listen, it's nice when people say, hey, I love it, it looks awesome, you look amazing, but do it for you. Do it for you. I went through all kinds of transitions and changes in my life from everything from being a street punk to where I am today and all kinds of stuff in between, including a period of over a decade and a half where I looked like a rabbi, long beard to my chest, right? Long beard to my chest, and uh, um, and and you know uh, my hair was uh, was shorter. You know I, I, I dressed in black with a white with a white shirt. You know what those guys look like. You've seen them before, right? Many 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 times. So what we're looking at here is the transition. I went from that, from where I am now to that, and then back to where I am now with long hair, short beard, and I don't dress like that anymore. I'm still the same guy on the inside but I don't need to wear a uniform on the outside to show it to anybody. You follow what I'm saying, right? I don't need to have it on the outside to share it with anybody. Nobody else has to see it but me. I have to be comfortable in what I'm wearing, the skin that I'm wearing. So how do you get comfortable in your own skin? It has a lot to do with being honest with yourself. It has a lot to do with who you are and what's important to you and your ability to hold your head up high and make decisions that work for you. Internal motivation, 
versus external motivation, meaning simply being moved to make change from something that motivates you or drives you on your own from the inside versus everything that everybody tells you to do. Oh, you should cut your hair. It would look great. You should do this. It would look amazing. shouldn't wear that. It doesn't look nice on you. That's not a nice color. That's not this. That's not that, right? you got to be comfortable in your own skin, the job that you have, the work that you're doing, the people you're with, the friends that you have. If you're with friends that don't make you feel good about yourself, you're not making a great choice. You're clearly not comfortable in your own skin. Liking who you are, liking what you see when you wake up in the morning, go brush your teeth if you do, hopefully, first thing. You look in your mirror, you go, yeah, it's going to be a good day. I'm feeling good about myself right now. Choices that work for you. It sounds like I'm telling you to be selfish, but not really. It's not a selfish thing. It's a self-preservation thing. And sometimes they look the same, seem the same, sound the same, smell the same, but they're not the same. And there's a little bit of a difference between being selfish and being self-preserved. Self-preserved makes you, means you're making good, healthy choices for yourself, not out of desire to not do for others, but out of desire to do for yourself first. There's a reason you put on the mask on the airplane. When, God forbid, the plane is starting to go down, you put the mask on your face first and your child second. You have to learn, my friends, how to put the mask on first, taking care of yourself, making choices that you're comfortable with, doing what you're comfortable with, living with things that make you happy. The whole world doesn't have to agree with you for it to be the right choice. The right choice has to be the one that works for you, gives you the most comfort, and makes you the happiest that you can be. When we come back, we're going to talk about mental health and exercise and how it makes you feel better. It's an obvious thing, but we'll get into the research you're on the road to recovery. This is Jonah Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the show. Hopefully you enjoyed your break. It was a little longer than normal, so uh, you got to do the things you need to do, and you're sitting back down in your chair, and if you're just joining us right now on 640, my name is Yona Bud. You're on the road to recovery here, and we thank you so much for joining us. And uh, by the way, it's about 10.05. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones? If not, you need to find them. If you can't find them, give us a call. We'll do what we can to help you. Uh, we're at 416-870-6400, but call 911 if you think that they're in any kind of real trouble, right? Including your pets and everyone else that's involved that you care about in your life. Um, and we got a lot of stuff to do tonight. Still lots, lots more left on the show here. If you don't know who I am, I'm the clinical director and co-founder of the treatment center, the farm in Stouffville, an in-home program called Recover at Home. And I'm a broadcaster. I also deal with kids in crisis and uh, I speak. I, um, I do coaching and leadership training, all that kind of stuff. So that's who you're hooked up with and I'm glad to be here with you all and uh, yeah, it's fun uh, fun to be doing this and hopefully you're listening and it's having some impact on your life in a positive way. That's what we're trying to do. So year-long exercise study reveals surprising impacts on your mental health. I want to know for those that are out there, we'll take some calls 416-870-6400 or if you're outside of the GTA 888-225-8255 I want to talk to you real quick about your mental health and you find that you feel better after you exercise, so I tell my patients like this: You need to eat properly, right? Uh, if you eat, if you need to eat properly and you uh, sleep properly and you get some fitness on a daily basis, chances are your mental health is going to stay in check. 
So we've seen studies over valuable insights into uh, different ways exercise can be beneficial for the brain, from combating depression to fighting dementia to boosting our memory. So research has approached, as a, um, new research has approached this topic with a long-term view, uh, tapping into a year's worth of Fitbit data. That's how they got it. Fitbit's one of those devices you wear, keeps track of your steps and your wellness and so on, your heartbeat and such. I wear it on my ring. It's called an Aura. Uh, it doesn't wear. I don't wear it on my wrist because I wear different watches, but I wear it on my finger as a ring called an Aura. Works great. Uh, anyway, the study is uh, the handiwork of scientists at Dartmouth College who set out to dig into the nuances of exercise's effects on the brain function and mental health. They sought to expand the studies in the area and examine the effects of exercise over a period of days or weeks by instead drawing on data from 113 Fitbit users over a 12-month period. So the, uh, the mental health and memory are central to nearly everything we do in our everyday lives, says the lead author, uh, Jeremy Manning. Our study is trying to build a foundation for understanding how different intensities of physical exercise can affect aspects of mental health and cognition. So I can tell you for sure that my patients do really well. So, for example, if you have an anxiety issue and you do some high-level exercise, so it can be as simple as push-ups, sit-ups, uh, a bike ride, um, if you have a Peloton or something like that, you know, go doing, a, doing a session, um, you know, sit-ups, things you can do at home, uh, punching a heavy bag, uh, banging nails uh, into a piece of wood. You know, I have a lot of people out there that can't afford to buy a heavy bag or whatever, so they find a piece of lumber at a couple of construction sites where they have offcuts that they throw away, Go buy yourself a big box of nails, and when you're feeling angry and you're feeling anxious, go pound some nails. After about 15 minutes of pounding nails, your anxiety goes from a 10 to a, to a 3. Same too with a workout. If you actually can get to a gym, a high-intensity 20-minute workout will, will take your anxiety from a very high level to a very low level. But it also improves memory. It also improves mental health overall, general wellness, because it keeps your blood flowing keeps everything moving. It works with your endorphins. It works with your dopamine. It does all the things in your system that are good for you. It's like a wake-up call to your body to say, oh, okay, here. Here we are. We're up. We're ready. Let's rumble. Right? So we want to make sure that we're spending our time exercising properly. Properly means give yourself the time it takes. Don't be stressed about the workout. Be focused on what it's going to get you at the end of the day where you're going to be at the end of the day because that's what's important here what's important is to understand you know where you're going to what 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 the result of a good fitness regime means so if you're if you're the kind of person that works out early in the morning chances are you're going to have a much less stressful day if you don't work out in the morning and you're, and you're in a stress environment and you work out at the end of the day chances are you're going to be able to relieve that stress release it and relieve it such that when you get home, food just tastes better. You're not going to be angry with your, your, your housemate, your spouse, your kids, whomever, your parents, yourself. You're not going to be looking to you know, drink a whole bunch or use a whole bunch of things you probably shouldn't during the school week, so to speak. Right? Exercise is the key to good mental health. Daily exercise. Doesn't mean you have to be in the gym and look like Arnold Schwarzenegger to tell you how old I am, right? In his day. You don't have to look like The Rock, right? You don't have to be built like that. But just a good workout, just more so how it feels on the inside, less about how it makes you look on the outside. The release of stress. The release of anxiety. The release of panic. 
ways to get your head out of the past as it relates to depression, guilt, all those. You can work those out physically. Obviously, good, good mental health therapy is important. Good talk therapy is important. Learning how to live in the moment through mindfulness, very important. Cognitive behavioral therapy, CBD is what it's called, CBT, excuse me, what it's called. Cognitive behavioral therapy, learning how to live today, find the sunshine in the dark cloud. Glass half full, glass not half empty, you know, that whole routine, right? There are ways that our physical health keep our mental health in check. And for the study, the researchers enrolled 113 Fitbit users. They were asked to perform a series of memory tests, answer some questions about their mental health, share their fitness data from the previous year. And then the scientists expected that the more active individuals would have better memory performance and mental health. But the results were actually more nuanced. The participants who tended to exercise at low intensities performed better at some memory tasks, while people who exercised at high intensities did better on others. People who were more intensive, intensely working out and active reported higher stress levels, whereas those who regularly exercised at lower intensities showed lower rates of depression and anxiety. So the, 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 those who, the plotters, if you will, those that go into the gym, you know, do a, you know, what, what, a basic routine, you know, get on the bike, do some stretching, maybe a little bit of weight work or, or something with bands or, or equipment, you know, machines that give you the, the resistance, resistance-related uh, resistance um, uh, exercise, right, where you're pushing against something, sometimes your own body weight. But slow and steady wins the race, right? Easy peasy. The data collected included average heart rates, daily step counts, and how much time was spent exercising in different heart rate zones. And, def and that's defined by Fitbit, right? So there's rest, there's out of range, fat burn, cardio, or peak. Those are the Fitbit zones that are de defined on that device. And other information collected over a calendar year. The participants in the study were recruited online from Amazon's Mechanical Turk, a crowdsourced workforce. So the, the four types of memory tasks used in the study were designed to probe different aspects of participants' abilities. So two sets of the tasks were focused on episodic memory. So episodic memory, the same type of memory used to remember, let's say, autobiography, autobiographical event, biographical events, like what you did yesterday, for example. Another set of tasks were developed, was developed to test spa, uh, spatial memory, the same type of memory used to remember locations, like where you parked your car. So you can see now how that kind of starts trending towards things like, you know, anxiety, like uh, like uh, mental illnesses such as Alzheimer's. And by the way, this is September is Alzheimer's month, and we're going to talk to an expert here on the next segment to talk about how bullying affects your mind, how it affects your your mental health, right? How that how that shocking of your the, the shocking your system by being bullied, how that impacts your mental health. We know that we can do physical things to improve our mental well-being. We know that simple fitness on a daily basis improves those, let's say, elderly folks. Like my dad, for example. My dad is in his, uh, in his, um, uh, my dad is in is 96, thank God. He just turned 96. And, you know, he has days where he just doesn't feel like going out. He goes to work. He's a volunteer in a, in a community uh, organization in, uh, in Toronto here. And he generally goes out five, six days a week, shirt and tie, jacket and pants, looks like a million bucks, 
But the days he doesn't feel like it, his legs hurt, and so on, he doesn't feel like going anywhere, his cognition is diminished. You can see it. And God forbid he gets sick, like he's had COVID a few times, and no effects of it, really, other than you couldn't go to work, you couldn't leave his uh, apartment. And you could see after four or five days of not leaving, his cognition would change. He, rem he didn't remember the same stuff he used to remember. Or he didn't. He wasn't as spunk, he wasn't as um, didn't have as much spunk. Doesn't have the same you know bounce in his step, so to speak. So we know that if we're having a hard time in our head, we can physically make a difference. We can physically impact what goes on in our head by what we do with our bodies. Nutrition is a big part of it too. Eating properly and sleep. Being able to get a good night's sleep, whatever a good night's sleep means for you. Some people it's five hours, some people it's seven hours, some people it's ten hours. Depends on who you are. But you need sleep. So sleep, exercise, and nutrition are clearly three a three-legged stool that provides you to support or provides support for you. Excuse me to make sure that you have good mental health. And if you're someone like me who's got anxiety disorder and OCD and ADD, I've got all three of the trifecta of stuff. Days I don't do exercise, days I don't eat properly, days I don't get good sleep, it's a problem. There's something in smart recovery called HALT. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. If any one of those things are in check, like if you're hungry, if you're angry, if you're lonely, if you're tired, I'd like to add fitness to that, no workout. Those are days that your mental health is probably not going to be great. You're probably not going to get the best out of yourself. So what we're talking about, my friends, is exercise. Simple stuff. Exercising your brain as well, right? You can do that. That's a little different. My wife and I play Scrabble. That's the way that we exercise. That's how we exercise our brain. We play Scrabble and uh, read and do things that cause me to think, things that cause her to think, right? And, you know, we, we challenge ourselves. We challenge each other. We challenge ourselves to make sure that we remember things. She'll ask me, my wife will ask me story, you know, to, to remind her about stories of certain things or certain situations that, you know, I remember from my past as an example. Anyway, when we come back, we're going to talk to this expert. As I said, it's uh, World uh, Alzheimer's Month. We're going to come back and talk to an expert about how bullying affects the brain and uh, the impact it has on a person's mental health. Uh, should be not a lot of surprising stuff, but should be really interesting stuff. So stay with me. We'll be right back. You're on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Mm Welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm Yona Bud here. You're on the road to recovery, 640 Toronto. We're so happy to have you join us. I love you guys. You are the best audience ever. My good friend Stefan, who uh, works in the studio with us, is, uh, does the technical production. Um, he was talking. We were talking, and he's a nice young boy, and um, you know checks out everything on uh, on social media. And he said it was it was interesting. He said because when I share stuff that seems to be opposite what he reads in, in on on uh, social media, like TikTok and stuff, he says, but Yona, but you're the expert, so I'd listen to what you have to say. So um, not necessarily me, but just make sure if you're getting advice. You're getting advice from people who have the credibility and have the expertise and perhaps the background and education to give you that advice. And, uh, you know, follow advice from someone that you think, whether it's me or someone else, doesn't have to be me, but someone that you have enough respect for their opinions and what they have to say. Um, that's kind of how you should roll, as the kids would say. This month, kids at Western University 
they didn't kick off with the traditional frosh week. Nope. The frosh is, by the way, a big party, and that's where lots of stuff happening, like hazing and excessive drinking. And there was a death of a student that reported last September that kind of slowed things down as a result of sexual assault. Anyway, we don't want to single out that school, but allegations of sexual assault and cover-ups continue to surface at some of the most valorized institutions in Canada. And what we're really talking about today is we're talking about um, the impact of bullying uh, on the brain. And when I talk about listening to experts, the person I have joining us this evening, her name is Jennifer Fraser. She's a speaker, author, and the founder of The Bullied Brain, and an expert on this kind of stuff. And she joins us this evening. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Yona. Thanks so much for staying up late and playing with me. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. Thanks. It's hard to find people to play in the middle of the night, you know that? Um, so anyway, and the ones that play at this hour of the night, maybe they're not so sober, so it's hard to have a conversation with them, uh, especially on a Saturday night. This thing about bullying, you know, I, I, you know, in my own practice, I see it constantly when we talk to patients about, you know, so why are you doing what you're doing? And, you know, any trauma in your life and, you know, any situations at home, you know, the general drill down. And um, inevitably, 7 out of 10 have a bullying experience of some sort either in school, as an adult, in a relationship, at home. God, we see it often at home. Um, so give us a little, little, little bit of a background here. What, what do we know about the brain and how it actually reacts to bullying? Well, this is kind of the breakthrough. This is the game changer, I believe. I've been working on this issue for about 10 years and finding exactly what you're finding. It's prevalent, it's rampant, it's rife in our society. We, we love to talk about how we have zero tolerance for bullying, but it's not actually true. We, we live in a society, we raise our children in a society where bullying is rampant, it's condoned, it's enabled, and it's associated with power and prestige. So the highest level of, of leadership in our society is blatant examples examples of bullying um, and they're not held accountable and it's it's seen as normal so I tackled this and tried to figure out a way why this was and why it was happening and what I realized was the one thing that most people don't know the bully the bullied and the bystander is that actually when they do these behaviors it causes significant and it can be long-lasting harm to the brain to theirs, or to, to theirs, or to the people that they're. So, is there an impact on the bullier as well as the bullied, Absolutely. or the bully as well as the bullied? Absolutely, and the bystander. So, an individual. When oh, the bystander, or, right? Well, uh, somebody who goes out and bullies other people, they're not. It's not really a conscious choice. It's it's a very. Um, as you say, you know, bullying happens in the home, and it's very correlated with uh, addiction and substance abuse and attempts to self-medicate. So a brain that's in the home, a developing brain, or in a school, or in a sport program, as we're seeing massively in Canada, those brains are young, and they're in their formative years, and they're in a state of extremely high development when they're 13 to 24. And so they are absorbing and being sculpted and shaped, the bully and the bullied, by their environment. And that's where we really need to understand that it's not a moral issue. It's not they need discipline. It's a medical crisis of yeah. existential levels. 
Yeah. You know, it's, um, you know, and people don't understand uh, bullying can, you know, it's not necessarily picking on a kid after school and pulling their pants down or stealing their lunch, you know, like we did back when we were kids and did stupid things. Um, bullying in the home, bullying it, bullying it in the workplace, you know, a, 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 an employer, a boss who doesn't talk to you nicely, who makes you feel like a piece of garbage, who's constantly putting you down. Same with a parent, same with a sibling, same with a, a you know, a lover, a, a housemate, a, a, you know, a, 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 you know, some form of, of relationship that you're in. And generally, the bullying seems to happen. I don't know what you see in your work, but um, the most impacted bullies that I see in my practice are the people that are closest to us. So not so much the idiot at school who everyone knows is a bully, but the people that we kind of look to and trust to think that they're going to be, you know, reliable, you know, adults in most cases. And then they take advantage by bullying us, by putting us down, by making us feel bad. Um, do, you know, how do we how do we get around? How do we help people understand that they don't have to stand for that? Yeah, no, it's so important. What I use in my work to get people to understand how we need to make change and how this has become endemic is by looking at brain scans. So when you look at the evidence that scientists can see on brain scans, so you can see a completely healthy, um, apparently well individual, when you look at their brain scan and they've had either extreme emotional abuse or they've had physical abuse, you can see on the brain scan that their brain is very, very compromised. It's being hurt, it's being harmed, and it's starting to uh, impact, of course, because it's the brain, the way in which they feel, the way in which they think, and the way in which they behave. And I mean, that's really, for me, where I see our capacity to make change. The science shows us that all forms of bullying and abuse, including those that do not touch the body, do unbelievable harm to the brain, and it can be seen on a brain scan. Yeah, people don't understand that those kind of uh, those kind of uh, bumps and bruises on the inside that no one sees they're much harder to get away, get rid of than the ones you can put ice on on the outside. What, why is it so important to study these connections? Do you think between bullying and, and brain damage or brain or brain interruption? Uh, it's really important because it shapes all of our society. So, I mean, from the very lowest level on the playground all the way up to the highest echelons of power, bullying and abuse are gonna shape the way in which we treat one another, if we're children, and then other countries and the workplace and what we decide about money, what we decide about food distribution. It, it, it impacts absolutely everything. If we have very unhealthy brains in positions of power in our world, which we it would take about, I don't know, 10 minutes to see that right now in the world we have incredibly compromised brains that have ridiculous amounts of power. Yeah. Um, we, we could actually change how we function as a society. So this is my big push is to say, you know, we need to get up to speed with the science and say, this isn't a moral issue. This is a medical crisis. Let's Correct. not, you know, put people with mental health issues, and you can see it on brain scans, in positions of power. 
We've got a couple of minutes left, so we can touch on this before we go to break, and then I, I understand you're going to stick around, which is great. Um, I'm loving this conversation, by the way, um, because not enough people talk about it. The the impact on bullying on the brain, um, as it ex- ex- as you suggest, you can see it physically in the on the brain scans and the, and the data that the science shows. But it's really simple. I mean, I'm sure you see it in the work that you do. Like I can, you know, you can tell a bullied victim uh, in therapy. You can tell a bullied victim pretty easily because they have limited self-esteem, you know, lim- limited confidence. Um, we've got less than less than 30 seconds. Is this, are you, are you matching to that? Are you finding that it also impacts a person's confidence level and such? Absolutely. A, a bully is somebody that seeks another. They, they're codependent already, whether they're child or adult. They need a victim. They need bystanders because they don't, they're not whole. They need to make it a show, right? Absolutely. When we come back, we're going to continue to talk to Jennifer Frazier. She's a speaker, author, and founder of The Bullied Brain, an expert when it comes to this kind of stuff. So we'll be right back here on The Road to Recovery. I'm Yona Budd. This is 640 Toronto. Addiction and mental health are serious issues, and we take them seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Budd on 640 Toronto. back. I'm here with Jennifer Frazier. She's a speaker, author, and founder of The Bullied Brain. It's a book, something you need to get to. We're going to talk about that in just a sec. I got one more big question for her before we talk about her book. Jennifer, thanks for being here with us. Uh, It's easy enough for people to say that we need to put an end to bullying, but how can we actually make meaningful change? So is it how we talk about it? Or is it how we report incidents of bullying and abuse? Or is it more in how we discipline folks who perpetuate it? Now, discipline wouldn't be the word you would use, right? Because for you, it's not a disciplinary issue. It's a mental health issue. How, how do we manage that for both the bully and the bullied? Yeah, that's that's the big money question. Um, there's massive systemic problems. Um, but with I think the key, rather than getting into the large overarching issue, the key is... We need children and adults to understand that when an individual is displaying bullying behaviors, really they're waving a red flag that they have mental health issues. And so while we're very quick to respond to a broken leg with uh, compassion and uh, an instant need to get a professional involved to assess what does the, you know, an x-ray, what is the yeah. broken the, the broken bone look like? How can we heal it? Do we need pins? Do we just need a cast? Etc. We need to do the same with the brain. When you have an individual, whether it's a child or an adult who's bullying, we need to understand that there's something broken, I'm using that word metaphorically, in their brain, but it can be seen on a brain scan. There's something very wrong with how they are feeling and acting, intending and behaving. We need an expert. We need to look at an EEG. We need to see uh, an example of uh, or an understanding of what exactly is happening, and then we can put in rehabilitation, repair, and restoration of that brain. It's not a, the person is being bad. It's the person is behaving in such a way that shows that there's something very wrong in how their brain is functioning. 
You know, there was a time way back when, when I back when I was cutting my teeth four decades ago in this business and working with uh, children that had Tourette's Tourette's syndrome, and I didn't have a lot of understanding of what Tourette's was. And uh, these uh, some of these young kids would act out; they would swear in class. It's called carparilia, or they couldn't be disciplined, and they can't. You know, some of them were being tied to their seats and, and handcuffed to their chairs um, until we realized that it's not a discipline problem; it's a serious mental health issue. Um, we've been talking about bullying and bullying abuse and those being abused for decades and decades as well. Um, what do you think is going to force change now uh, in 2022-23? What do you think is going to force change now uh, now that you, you know, regardless of whether you understand it's perpetrated by someone who has a, a you know, diminished mental health either way, they're still victims and they're still, vi as you say, collateral damage in the bystanders. Um, how, do you, how do we go forward with this? Now, understanding what we know, what would you suggest as a, a method of, uh, of kind of turning this behavior? I, I honestly think, Yona, the key is neuroscience, like brain science, what we can see on brain scans. When we start to understand that, just like a broken bone can be seen on an x-ray, we can see a brain that is being absolutely harmed on a brain scan, we, we don't assess children's brains. We look at their teeth yearly, we look at yeah. their eyes, we look at their ears, we check yeah. their heart if there's an issue. We don't look at their brains, even though the, we have the non-invasive technology to do that. We don't ever assess how a child's brain is developing, functioning. Does it have Tourette's? Does it have any other issue? And what can we do to repair it? There's so much research on how we can intervene and actually rehabilitate brains that are struggling it's like eyes and ears and hearts etc it's just for whatever reason in our society we are we are still ignoring the brain even though it's arguably the most important organ in our body it affects everything we now have the science to be able to say you know what there's so many interventions and positive things we can do to make our brains healthier do you think, uh, I, got, I have some personal questions and I want to get to the book in a second here real quick, but um, a quick answer for me here. Do you think there is, um, do you think if we scan the brain, there's preventative stuff we can do ahead of the bully acting out? So if we know we had a bully brain, we're you able to stop them before we act out or does it not work like that? It absolutely works like that. It's called prodromal syndrome or prodromal symptoms. You can see in a brain leading up to uh, not only bullying and aggressive and destructive behaviors, but also uh, bipolar, also schizophrenia. You can see it by assessing and doing an EEG prior to the symptoms manifesting. That's what prodromal means. Wow. And the neuroscientists are like, how come we're not jumping in and doing the necessary repair work that we can do? We know how to do it. It's evidence-based. Why aren't we doing it? And this is what I work on. This is my research and my, my push. Wow. How did you get involved in this type of work? I mean, were you bullied or were you a bully at some point in your life? <laughs> I, was, uh, I was actually a teacher at a school, and um, I heard direct reports from quite a number of students that they were being, uh, there was homophobic slurs, swearing, um, scenes of public humiliation, grabbing when the child tried to get away, etc. And it was teachers who were doing the behavior. So then I started to say, okay, why are teachers behaving this way? Why is it enabled? Why is it condoned? Why are we covering it up? And what does it do to kids' brains? And then when I started to look at the research, I realized what it does to kids' brains is so serious. It goes back to what you said before, Yona, about betrayal. It's betrayal trauma. It's when someone has power 
they should yeah. be caring for a child and they're actually abusing that very sacred position, that's where unbelievable damage happens in the brain. And so that's when I was like, everyone needs to know this research. It's so important. I haven't read it. I'm going to get it. I just haven't had a chance to before the show. But what can people expect from your book, The Bullied Brain? Um, I spend time uh, showing people that the research is very clear that what happens to brains that have been bullied and abused in all forms, emotional, sexual, and physical, the, the damage to the brain is very, very significant. So I share that research. I try to motivate people to understand this is serious. We can't see it, but you can see it on brain scans. And then I put in a huge amount of evidence-based practices on how we can rehabilitate and heal. Amazing. Um, what would you like people to know about the brain's ability to change? I mean, if you were able to, to, to scream a message from the top of a big building, what would that message be? It would be that every single brain from the moment it's born until the moment you're breathing your last breaths can be changed. We have brain plasticity. It means we can strengthen our brains. We can allow them to be weakened in destructive situations. But we have our own innate power to miraculously heal all damage, all harm, and all trauma to the brain. It's a matter of following evidence-based practices to get better. You know, earlier on in the show, I don't know if you were listening into the first segment, but we talked about um, how adults uh, in the U.S., adults should be screened, as I think kids as well, screened for anxiety. Um, you know, a brain scan is pretty non-invasive. Um, you know, why are we not pushing perhaps to have this as part of your general checkup, especially for kids? I am pushing incredibly hard with a group of neuroscientists to make this be an absolutely standard practice in our society. I believe it's only a matter of time. It's We need people to care. We need people to learn. It's why I wrote my book. I want people to understand that, you know, the brain needs that type of assessment. It's, it's amazing what we can do. Once we identify there's something wrong, we can fix it. So... Yeah, it's it's the big game changer. We have to do it. And this is why your show is important, because you're sharing this knowledge. You know, thank you. And you know what? I can hear, I haven't met you, but I can hear in your voice how pumped you are about, about this conversation and how, you know, how just like I can feel your little toes tipping as we're, you know, moving up and down as we're talking because you're so excited. Uh, what 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 keeps you going, man? Like, like it's, it, I, sh I realize it's like pushing rope because it's going to be a while before we're able to affect this kind of change because we live in a bit of a messed up society. But in 30 seconds or less, how do you keep going? Um, I was lucky enough to have one of the world's greatest neuroscientists, Dr. Michael Merzenich, actually care as passionately as I do about this issue. He cares about children. He is willing to do anything to make change, to do research, to get the assessments out there. And I work with him, and I'm just thankful that he cares as much as I do. Talking to Jennifer Fraser, she's a speaker, author, and founder of The Bullied Brain. I think you should run out and get the book. Sounds like it'd be uh, very impactful and uh, a real eye-opener. Thanks for joining us, Jennifer. When we come back, we're going to revisit this anxiety screening thing that we've been talking about in the U.S., see if it makes sense for you. Maybe it makes sense for me. We'll be right back here on The Road to Recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Now, Road to Recovery with Yona Bud continues. Only on 640 Toronto.
And welcome back. We're on the last segment of our ride here on the Road to Recovery. I'm going to Bud 640 Toronto. Thanks for checking this out. We appreciate you being here. And uh, next week, we've got a whole bunch more exciting stuff to talk about, interesting stuff to learn about. I, I, it, it's Every week for me, it's a really incredible learning experience. I'm going to read from a book called Managing Anxiety with Mindfulness for Dummies. It's a Wiley brand book. Uh, it's one of the For Dummies book. I give it to my patients, every one of them, um, because pretty much all of the patients that I see have at least anxiety and depression, if not other things. Um, and I'll, I'll, let me read you from this a little bit, right? Anxiety is very common. Everyone experiences some form of anxiety on a day-to-day basis. It can be a helpful emotion, making you focused, alert, and productive, right? But it can also be incredibly upsetting, uncomfortable, and hard to live with. In this, in the chapter in the book, describe the nature, experiences, and symptoms of anxiety. Then there's a section that compares fear, excitement, and anxiety. And what I really wanted to get to is clarifying the difference between anxiety and excitement. So anxiety is similar to fear, but without obvious danger. It's a thought focused on something going wrong in the future, and is often a notion that things are worse than they really are. Sometimes a traumatic event or lots of stress-causing factors trigger your anxiety. By other times, it doesn't have to have an identifiable reason. It just comes on, right? Everyone on the planet experiences some level of anxiety at some point. It's a natural part of the human experience, but if you're finding your anxiety difficult to deal with, don't worry. Anxiety can be a treatable disease in the physical sense. Excitement is very similar to anxiety. If you're excited about something, you may rec- recognize the same types of physical feelings, such as fart, fast heartbeat beat, and sweating. So the difference between fear, excitement, and anxiety, so the physical sensation for fear, fast heartbeat, sweating, and high energy, the reason, an immediate threat of danger. Excitement, the physical sensations, fast heartbeat, sweating, and high energy, the reason, can originate from or, can originate from or lead to positive memories. Anxiety, fast heartbeat, heartbeat, sweating, and high energy, something that may happen in the future, which is causing worry and stress and for no clear reason at all. So that's what we're talking about in this segment. We're talking about adults that should get routinely screened, according to the U.S. experts. They should be routinely screened for anxiety. Because I know a lot of people, I'm sure you do too, that are concerned about what's going to be when the school when school's out in December, how they're going to pay their bills three months from now, what's going to be you know coming for the summer. A lot of people worry about stuff that hasn't happened yet. And the title of the book that I give to my patients, I'll say it again, Managing Anxiety with Mindfulness for Dummies. Using mindfulness to manage your anxiety. Mindfulness, simple, living in the moment. Or as the people in 12-step recovery say, one day at a time, one minute at a time, one opportunity at a time. So I really think after especially listening to the show this evening and talking to some experts, uh, coming back to this, this concept of routine anxiety screening, I think is, is should just be part of the whole brain scan thing that we heard earlier from our previous guest. Um, and, you know, as she explained that you know brain scanning is something that's readily available, non-invasive, something we can, we can easily provide, easily do, and we're not, right? We screen for allergies, we screen for all kinds of other things and food disorders and even DNA testing to see what kind of medications you can take. But what about some screening around anxiety? And then I, I, and the, something I want to get to here, I wasn't able to get to it in the first segment, but doctors should regularly screen adults under 65. Really? Why? People over 65 don't have anxiety? As a matter of fact, I would suggest that 
screening people as they get later, uh, older in life, later on in life, makes a lot of sense because that's when you're dealing with, God forbid, things like loss, loneliness, change of, of routine when you're, when you're ready to retire from whatever position, job, or, or, or career that you're in creates a lot of anxiety. People getting close to their retirement age are so concerned about what they're going to do next. Some have a great plan. I won't see those in my practice. But those who don't have a great plan end up doing things that aren't good for them when they've got too much time on their hands and they're not ready to keep their time filled with things that are healthy, positive, and uplifting. So the recommendations are based on you know, screening people under the age of 65. I'd certainly like to see that move maybe a decade for sure and by the way that same screening that the kind of brain scans we were talking about a little bit earlier right those kinds of brain scans can help with early onset dementia you know being able to find um, information that deals with early onset dementia as our friend Jennifer Fraser was saying our, our, our earlier guest when we're talking about bullying the brain bully, you know the brain is affect uh, the brain bullying affects the brain and how we can actually see it in scans Screening for anxiety, it's a set of questions. It's a function of that a, that a general practitioner, a family doctor, a nurse practitioner, you don't have to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist to administer these kinds of written screening tests. And they include just brief questions about symptoms such as fears and worries that interfere with your usual events. Things that easily can be given a primary care setting, the task force said. The most important thing to recognize is that screening test alone is not sufficient to diagnose anxiety. The next step is more thorough evaluation by a mental health professional. And, um, but if someone feels like they have anxiety, like Megan Whalen, 31-year-old marketing specialist, she was diagnosed with anxiety in 2013. She says regular doctors should screen for mental health issues as commonly as they do for physical ones. Health is health, she says, whether you can see the problem or not. And I'm saying the same thing. I think we have an opportunity at the family doctor level, at our general practitioner level, not necessarily trying to get to experts or specialists. Hey, how you doing? Now, can I? Can you mind if I ask you a few questions today? Listen, how you feeling? How you sleeping at night? You worried about anything? Anything give, keep making you feel a little fearful, a little panicky? Oh, really? What's that? Asking the right questions. Asking the right question at a young age as well. Asking young teenagers, 13, 12, 13, 14, 15, talking to them about how they're feeling. What's going on in their life? Who's bugging them? Any bullies? Are you being bullied? Are you acting as a bully? Someone bugging you at home? Mom or dad maybe not making you feel that great about yourself? Asking questions up front helps us treat people later. Helps us treat people down the road. Gives us the opportunity down the road to be ahead of the game. Proper screening for anxiety, proper screening for mental health in general just makes sense. It's preventative medicine, like having your tires checked before you have a flat, before it blows out on the highway. We spend so much time on our physical stuff on the outside, having, you know, if you get a little bump on your arm and it looks ugly, you go to the doctor and make sure, God forbid, it's not cancer or pains in your chest or your back hurts, or your leg hurts, or you can't eat properly, or you're not sleeping properly. Physical things. It's the emotional, mental, and, and, and psychological things that are inside that cause so much damage, and we don't see it until it explodes coming out the other end.
I really hope you've enjoyed the show this evening. I've had a great time being here. Um, I really appreciate the time and the effort that you spend tuning us in. And uh, I expect that you're going to have an amazing weekend. Make it the best weekend possible. Next week, we've got more stuff to do. I want to say thanks to Danny and Stefan and the crew at Chorus and 640 for the work that they do to help us prepare this show every work week. And to thank you all for being the kind of listeners and guests that you can be. And we want to hear from you a little more often, right? Road to Recovery at 640toronto.com. I promise I'll respond. Or 877-777-5808. You can reach me anytime. We'll get back to you, I promise, within 24 hours. Love to talk. This is Yona Bud. Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto.